0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Did you prank anybody yesterday? Well, April 1st is not your favorite holiday, I'm sure. It's April Fool's Day. It kind of holds a special place in my heart, though. Fifty-five years ago, yesterday, I was dating a charming and bright and beautiful, and I could go on and on with these things that would be true of her. Sally is her name. And we had been dating then for about three months and I decided it's time for me to fish or cut bait. And so I, as a senior in high school, I came up to her before class started one day and I had my senior ring. That's what we did in those days. This is the dark ages, I want you to know. And you would give your girlfriend your ring and that means she belongs to you. And that's what I was interested in, to say the least. And so I asked her, and then I prefaced this by saying, if you don't say yes, we are finished. <laughs> now, I was running, I mean, I was running a great risk at that point. But I had something in my pocket. It was April Fool's Day. So if she said no. I said, April Fool's Well, she said yes, and then three and a half years later, she said yes to be my wife, and so that's been a long time ago, but I think back on that day with great fondness. Pilate, when he wrote what we read in John 19, verse 19, if you open your Bibles to John 19, we continue to study the Gospel of John together. In verse 19, shows us that either Pilate was vindictive in what he's saying here, in requiring this statement of who Jesus was and what his crime was that warranted his being crucified. He wrote, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, and he made that the inscription which was above the head of Jesus. And by the way, anyone who was crucified had a description of who he was and what he allegedly had done. It happened occasionally that people who were present at a crucifixion, seeing the name of the person, identifying the person, and then seeing the alleged crime, would come to the rescue of that person and say, wait, wait, I have evidence... That this is not an accurate thing that's being stated against this individual. Well, Jesus never called himself king. Did you know that? When he was asked, are you the king of the Jews by Pilate? He said, you have said it. He didn't say, I'm king. The big problem that Jesus was put to death for had nothing to do, deeply at least, with violating Roman law. Remember when he stood trial before Pilate, who was a representative of Caesar there. And Caesar was well represented because this man Pilate, for all his faults, he had integrity as it related to the procedure. He went through the four steps that bona fide a trial under Roman law. And at the end, he found no guilt in Jesus. More than one time we've read in the 18th chapter and in breaching over into the 19th chapter, how he says, I find no fault in him. But the Jewish establishment would not have it. They were up in arms. He was afraid of the people, the scripture says. He let the people's voice prevail over what he knew to be right and true. And therefore... Jesus was accused and finally declared by Pilate that he had produced sedition and treasonry by calling himself the King of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. This is a story that is our story really today. It's as real for us today as the first group of people who heard it told by John through this gospel told it. So listen carefully to what the Lord might say to you and me today. Let's begin with verse 17 and look at the sight of the crucifixion. The humiliation and the exaltation are both present in the cross of Christ in His crucifixion. Look at the place where he was crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, verse 17 of chapter 19 says, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Now we know from other gospel writers that he didn't carry his own cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. He was so thoroughly depleted of electrolytes and any kind of fluids because of the beating he had taken it the hands of at least one Roman soldier as he was scourged. He had had no sleep for over a day by this time. The stress on his body was incredible. And we remember that he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was wrestling with his mission that he would drink the cup of the wrath of God. All that conspired to cause him to lose strength. And a man was conscripted out of the crowd. His name was Simon of Cyrene. And he carried not the entire cross, because someone who was crucified in that region at least only carried the cross piece. It was called a patibulum. On shoulders, he would take it. And that person would have that piece tied with rope to his shoulders. So this man, Simon of Cyrene, substituted in at that place, the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Historians and archaeologists tell us that this place was on the north side of Jerusalem. They deduce that from where the trial That was the trial that ended up with Jesus being sentenced to crucifixion. It was in the fortress Antonia, which was on the northwest side, on the wall side in the city, but right up against the wall of Jerusalem. And so Jesus had gone this circuitous route, and he was going there to the place of the skull. In 1865, an archaeologist by the name of Gordon came there, first time to the Holy Land, he was so excited to see the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were and where ultimately Jesus was. He was a Christian man, a believer in Jesus Christ, not just in his head, but in his heart. And he was eager to try to locate some of the sites that are mentioned in Scripture. And he was especially interested in finding out where the tomb of Christ was and also where the place of crucifixion. It didn't take him long to discern on that north side as he looked one day up on a hill just outside the walls of the city. A major thoroughfare exiting and entering into Jerusalem came right by this hill. And as he looked at it, Lo and behold, he saw what was clearly a skull's visage in that side of that hill. The eyes were almost equidistant apart. They were two caves. And then there was another place for the nasal cavity. You've seen a skull before and know what that looks like. And so since that time, coming up on 200 years now, scholars agree that is the place where Jesus was crucified. Jesus was not Executed in an isolated place. There was no privacy for Jesus. We know, and we're going to see a bit more about this, that He was stripped of His garments. It was common in most cases for a person who was crucified to be, excuse me, crucified naked. Now there is some Educated guessing going on here. But many scholars say because it was an abomination for a Hebrew person, whether male or female, to be exposed to the public eye, nude, that perhaps there was some exception that was made. We would hope so. But at any rate, Jesus was spread-eagled on that cross. And before everyone to see It's been said that the fact that His place of execution on the cross was on a skull. And that perhaps would be representative of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for the whole person. And we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, but also with all our mind. And the Bible says that when we come to know Jesus Christ, we have the mind of Christ. Jesus went to that place, on that day, for you and for me. Look at the signage, beginning with verse 19. We've already read it, but it's worth reading again. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew, the the language of religion. Latin, the language of law and politics. And Greek, the language of the intellectual of the day. What was God saying when He had Pilate to give that description in all three of those languages? He was saying, I did not come simply for the descendants of Abraham, but also for all other people in the world. Think back with me just a moment about what we have learned from the Gospel of John. In the first chapter, a couple of things stand out. The Bible says about Jesus, there was a true light who coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own meaning His own people and even, yes, His own nuclear family. He came to His own and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And this a little bit later in the first chapter, when John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he sees that He is the one How does He describe Him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The most famous verse, especially in the book of John, maybe in the entire Bible, is found in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then if we were to go to the fourth chapter and we're going to end our exploration here. There are other places we could go in the Gospel of John. But if we were to go to the fourth chapter, you know that contains the encounter that Jesus had at midday with a Samaritan woman. Jesus and His men are said to have had to go through Samaria. That was quite a statement because there was such animosity between Jewish people and Samaritans. Samaritans were considered half-breed by the Jews. And to traffic with a Samaritan was to contaminate oneself. And these people would make a long detour around a shorter route from Galilee, where Jesus headquartered, to Jerusalem. They would normally take a long way around so not to even go into Samaria because of the fear of being ceremonially ceremonially unclean. But Jesus had to go. He was compelled undoubtedly by the Spirit. And the Spirit knew there was someone there that Jesus needed to meet. His men go into the town to get food. And then while they're away, here comes a woman, a lone figure. She comes in the middle of the day, as I mentioned Women would come to that place early in the morning or late in the afternoon in the cool times of the day. And they enter into conversation. It becomes a conversation about quenching thirst. And Jesus lets her know, I'm not talking about physical thirst here. I'm talking about spiritual thirst and how to get it quenched once and for all. And the discussion goes on. And before you know it, this woman has embraced Jesus as the Messiah. As the Christ. And she's so excited, she runs into the town. She was a woman who was notorious in the the town. And she began to declare, I have found a man who knows everything about me. I've never seen him before. And he is reading my mail. He knows everything there is to know about me. And he's the one who is promised in our scriptures to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Well, the men listened. They, in mass, began to come out. They went to the well. They found Jesus there. By this time, His apostles had returned. They had offered Him the food which they had bought. He says, I'm not hungry. They said, who fed you, Master? Why are you not hungry? You were starving before we left. And then He said, I have meat to eat that you don't know of. What was that mean? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being able to share Jesus and to see someone come to know Jesus like had happened at that time. What a story. And then the Bible says, as those men reflected on that conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ and the way He had told them, much the same story as he had shared with this lady. This is what they described him as being. The Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. There's only one way that we can know God. That's through the person of Jesus Christ, who himself was man of very man, but also God of very God. He still is man of very man, and still is and always will be God of very God. So we see how this passage tells us that when on the placard which declared his identity and also his breach of Roman law that led him to be crucified. And verse 21 says, And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write. Actually, the grammar would render a better translation. Stop writing. The king of the Jews. But he he said, I am king of the Jews. And here's something that is sort of an aside. It may mean nothing to you, but it means a lot to me, and I hope it will mean something to someone here. They couldn't even use the pronoun he. The word he here translates the word that one said, I am the king of the Jews. They didn't even give Jesus the dignity of being considered a man, much less the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God become man in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 said, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And this means I have written it, and it's permanent. It's an indelible ink as it were. It's Also ink that's clear and it will be there forever and ever and ever. So we look at the signage and we learn things about Jesus that are very important. We look at the place and that has application to our lives too. But now let's spend the remaining time we have considering the significance of Christ's cross and His work on our behalf on the cross as it relates to us. It's relevant to every person in this room. Verse 23 says, The soldiers therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Let's stop right there. A part to every person plus the tunic. That tells us, because we know from literature contemporary to this time, that the typical wardrobe of a man of Jesus' stature would include five elements. A turban, a sash, or some would call it a girdle around one's midriff, sandals, then the outer garment. Those were the four items that were gambled for by these men. I mean, were, were divided, not gambled. The piece which was gambled for was the inner piece, the tunic, which was, as it's described here in verse 23, was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. Now I'm going to interrupt our consideration of John 19 for just a moment. And I'm going to ask you to keep your place in John 19 and turn with me to the 22nd Psalm. We introduced our worship service today and many of you were not here yet with the reading of the 22nd Psalm. And this passage of Scripture, the part we just read, talks about the fulfillment of a prophecy. And if you'll glance down, holding your place still in verse chapter 19, verse 28, the Bible says that Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. This prophecy in Psalm 22 is going to blow your mind if you've never explored it carefully. There are people who take pot shot after pot shot after pot shot at the reliability of the Bible. it being just a good religious book from antiquity full of flaws and not correct in many ways. But let's take a look at the 22nd Psalm. This Psalm in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which our elders are teaching over the course of this holy week beginning tomorrow, at 10 a.m. and each day after that at 10 a.m. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. This was written by David, 1,000 B.C. approximately. Maybe give or take 20 or 30 years. There was no such thing as crucifixion. We're going to get to where this passage in Psalm 22 talks about crucifixion in just a bit. But there is no such thing as crucifixion until sometime between 400 and 300 B.C. If my math is correct, there's like five or six centuries between the writing of Psalm 22 and the invention, if you will, of crucifixion. And the Persians were the ones who came up with the idea. The Persians wanted to execute people when they were guilty of a crime or an enemy. They wanted to execute them, but above ground. Here's why. is because they believed the earth was sacred. And they did not want any body part or whole person who was executed to fall on the ground for fear it would contaminate them. The Carthaginians came along about 100 years later and adopted from the Persians this method of executing. And it was a horrible, horrible method. In fact, I'm going to quote two notarized, notorious in the good way people in the Roman culture and history about this time. Cicero, he was a philosopher and this is what he wrote about crucifixion. He said it is cruel and horrifying death. And then Tacitus, who was one of the great historians of Rome, he said this, it's a despicable death. So, this is what Christ was facing this time. And he is forsaken by God when he's on the cross. Do you know why he was forsaken? Because in the book of Habakkuk, the Bible says God has such pure eyes, He cannot even look on sin. And when you couple that with what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So when it is declared by Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It didn't simply fulfill prophecy, but it declared what Jesus was experiencing. Jesus had been abandoned by God the Father. The first time in his 33 plus years, he did not have fellowship with God the Father. But think about this, the first time in eternity, he was forfeited of his relationship with the Lord because he became the place where sin was paid for. The word that's used in the New Testament, it's a big word, propitiation. It's also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And it's used in the Septuagint to describe the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. What happened on the mercy seat? Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest, would take two goats. He would confess all the sins from the previous year that he knew that Israel had committed. Then there was a designated person who was given the responsibility to carry that goat out as far as the eye could see and then over the horizon as if to fulfill what the Scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our sins or transgressions from us. But the second goat was slaughtered. The blood was let. The blood was taken by the high priest. He did this by himself. He would go into the Holy of Holies that part of the tabernacle and later the temple that only the high priest could enter without defiling it and bringing down the wrath of God on himself and Israel. He would go in there, he'd take that blood of the sacrificial goat and he would pour it on the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat was perfectly fit on the top, solid gold, but it was not attached. It was a separate piece of the furniture. And when he did that, the cherubim, which were fashioned, representing God, they were looking down from either end on this atonement for sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for us, and he paid the awful price for my sin and for your sin. That's the gospel. We were destined not only to die physically, but to die spiritually. We know a lot about a person when we have occasion to hear what he has said at the end of his life. We're hearing the words of Jesus in this passage. We learn even more about Him. How concerned He was about people there. We'll get back to that if I remember in a moment. But I want to mention a man that some of you may have heard of. Maybe you have studied his writings. His name was Voltaire. Voltaire was a French philosopher in the 18th century. And Voltaire was a man who had as his number one mission to destroy people's faith in Christianity. He was the Catholic Church in France's greatest enemy. And so, at the end of his life, he had spent his entire career trying to destroy the faith of people in Christ. He was alone on his deathbed with his doctor. And he said, I am abandoned by God and man. Notice, he made mention of God when he was on his deathbed. I'm abandoned by God and man. (laughs) And then he said to his doctor, I will give you half of all my worth if you can give me six more months to live. That doctor couldn't promise that, could he? He couldn't. Because no man knows his time, the Bible says. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment, to give an answer to God regarding the way we have conducted our lives. And the reality is, that everybody is going to come up short in that situation if we come to Him on our own. As Jesus read Romans 3, we've already read it, we've heard it, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This is a list of writings borrowed from what we call the Old Testament that are put together under inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Paul to describe the plight. All have sinned and fallen short of the the glory of God. All of us. All wrongdoing is sin and we've all broken the law of God. It only takes breaking one of His commandments to put us in the category of a sinner. And a sinner needs a Savior, right? And Jesus is that Savior. What a wonderful Savior we have. Look at verse 6 of chapter 22. But I am a worm and not a man. May I stop right there? Many people have objected to the translation worm because they said this is worm theology, that we're we're nothing. Well, they don't understand the word worm in its original language. is why they have such a fit over it, at least partly. And the word really describes an insect that, looked a lot like a worm. And this insect called tola, that's the way the word of that insect, the name of that insect is said in Hebrew. It's a word of an insect or a worm that when you squash it, you crush it, out comes what looks like blood, like red dye. And in fact, it was used by the Israelites when they were dyeing the fabric that was supposed to be scarlet in the tabernacle, they would gather these tola and then they would crush them and they would take that to cover the garments that they wanted or the linens they wanted to become red. He says, I have become a worm. I am a worm and not a man. He was crushed. On the cross, Christ was crushed for our sins by none other than God the Father. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. Does that sound like what happened at Christ as, as Christ was on the cross? Yes, it does, certainly. Drop down to verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Does that sound like somebody who's crucified? And it'd be easy to see how your shoulders would come out of socket with the constant pressure and trying to pull yourself back up to get a breath of air and then sinking back down. And so he says, my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast. Many scholars who have examined This execution style of crucifixion say that it's highly likely that Christ may have died in part by a ruptured heart. Because when the the soldier in charge stuck his spear up into the side of Jesus to see if he were dead, if he had expired, then instead of blood coming out, what came out? A clear liquid. That would be the collection of a serum around the pericardium which the heart sits in and the blood had coagulated in Jesus' body. So here we... They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, these all are very impressive, aren't they? And there's more. Time will not permit. I I encourage you to do your own continual research on Psalm 22 and take time to go to Isaiah 53 and look at it too. But what I'd like to say of all these very interesting connections between the crucifixion of Christ and Psalm 22, the one that really captures my attention most is verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here these soldiers are at the foot of the cross. They have undoubtedly pulled this kind of detail before, And they're getting the garments together, gambling for that one piece garment, the tunic. And they are sitting there playing a game. A picture of the world, indifferent. There they are. Look at what is said about some other people in this story The middle of verse 25. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, His mother, that would be Mary, and His mother's sister, we don't know her name, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. There were a lot of Marys around Jesus, right? But what we do know is, these are the four women who showed up at the cross. There's only one apostle who showed up at the cross. We're going to meet him in just a moment. The courage of these women. You might say, well, sure, they didn't have any fear of being crucified because women were not crucified. Well, I beg your pardon. They were genteel women. And they came out of love for Jesus. You can understand the love of a mother for a child to be there, but how hard that'd be. The horror of seeing your son who was now not even recognizable because of the beating that he had taken and all that he had gone through. It broke her heart, undoubtedly. But in great maternal way, she's there. The other three were disciples of Christ. And quite frankly, Mary was too. They're there. And then look at twenty-six. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He's talking here, undoubtedly, about the Apostle John. John's name does not pop up in the book of John. We don't see that. John the Baptist does, but not John the Apostle. And most scholars are agreed that this reference is not the only one of that sort in the Gospel of John. But this would indicate, this is John the Apostle standing in the morning. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. In other words, you're going to be this man's mother, spiritually, is what he was saying. And then he goes on to say to the disciple, Beloved, behold your mother. He gave responsibility to John, the son of Zebedee. Now, did Jesus have any brothers or sisters? Were there any siblings of Christ who by every account would be responsible to look after their mother in the event that the eldest son died? Well, yes. We even know the names of these people. James and Joseph and Judas those are three of the four male names. And then two unnamed sisters, at least, maybe more, because it names four brothers, and then sisters, which obviously is at least two, maybe more. But what Jesus had said sometime before this, is found in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is teaching, and this group of family members come, and they say, we want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus here's what they want of Him through an intermediary. Evidently the place He was teaching was so filled with people there was no more room. And so what Jesus said, He says, Who is my brother? Who is my mother? It is they who do the will of God. And He looked and He undoubtedly gestured and he, as He scanned the audience He says, You are my sister. You are my brother. You are my mother. What is Jesus talking about when He gives responsibility to John to look after his mother? And how this group is to be a unit is really what He's saying. It is the Beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. A picture at least. We know it was several weeks later at Pentecost when the church was finally formed when the Spirit of God descended. But this is a picture. It would be a small group. Can you imagine what has happened in the history of the world as a result of a beginning like this? Five people. And John had... Like the other apostles, he even had left Jesus in that time of Jesus' arrest. But he came back, didn't he? He came back. Look, there may be a John in this room this morning. You've been away from the Lord. And you know it. You came here maybe thinking maybe this would be the day I could get in an up-to-date relationship with Jesus again. I hope so. Today is the day probably for that. But what we see here is that Jesus is interested in individuals, isn't He? He was interested in the thief on the cross when He said to him, Today you will be with Me in paradise. And this thief, by the way, had early on in His time, according to Matthew chapter 27 on the cross, He had joined His other friend in crime probably the other thief and they kept mocking Jesus they were both saying all the kind of ugly things that passers by were and the religious leaders were saying about Jesus but we see a change occurred in this man what, what caused it Jesus had said the first thing he said from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me and then he goes on to say father forgive them for they do not know what they do. This man had watched Jesus and he'd never seen a man like Him who was ready to forgive all those who were crucifying Him, all those who insulted Him, and all those indifferent people on that thoroughfare. And they didn't even give a shrug perhaps when they were moving back and forth in and out of Jerusalem on the North Highway out of in, and into Jerusalem. But he saw something and his heart was changed. And then he said, Lord, today, remember me in paradise. And what doesn't appear to our English reading eyes is reported in this statement when he said he asked, and he didn't ask once, he asked at least twice, and probably repeatedly, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Awesome to think about. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And we looked at that in chapter 22. I didn't emphasize that, but in 14 and 15, and then also in Psalm 69, 21 There's a reference to that effect that he was thirsty. He was physically thirsty. And anyone and everyone who was crucified had that same physical response. They were dying for water, literally. But also, I think, and remember, God had forsaken him during that three-hour period that he just enters out of when he utters these last two or three things that he said before he died. And he was thirsty for a reunion with the Father. Are you here today? And you've been closer to the Lord before than you are today? And you've managed to ignore Him, stiff-arm Him, but today He's speaking to you. And He hasn't forsaken you like He did Jesus, but you have forsaken Him. This is a good day to get it right with Him, isn't it? There's no day like today to do that. I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. Hyssop was used in the ceremony of the Passover when the plant hyssop would be dipped into the blood of the sacrificial lamb and sprinkled on the people present. Symbolic of the blood of the lamb being that which would atone for the sin of the individual and brought it up to his mouth. Jesus took some wine here. He would not take it when He was first crucified because the wine that would have been given then was doctored with a narcotic that would have dulled the pain. Jesus didn't want to miss the pain. He was not a masochist, but He wanted to do it right. Verse 30, When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Let me finish with this. I want to talk in the four four minutes we have left about what it means when Jesus says it is finished. One word in His language. Te telestai. The way the word is constructed, it would indicate that whatever has been finished cannot be undone. Once done, always in effect. So what Christ did for us on the cross, when He went to the cross took our punishment for us, became the propitiation of our sin, became the place where the wrath of God was satisfied, became our sacrifice. He also became our Redeemer. And Jesus has redeemed us. That word in English comes from two words, which means to buy back. He has bought us back. Jesus says, about Himself, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's the cross, isn't it? He gave His life a ransom for us who know Him and for those who would embrace Him as Lord and Savior. And He's also the reconciler. We wouldn't blame God, would we? If He said, all I can do is forgive you. I don't want to have any intimacy with you going forward. Who could blame the Lord for that if we have His forgiveness? But He doesn't deal that way with us. What does He do? The Bible says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were His enemies. He died for us. And He died for us to reconcile us to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes it possible for us to know God and not just casually, to know him personally and intimately, to have that kind of relationship where he longs to meet with you and me. Jesus said to his apostles just a few hours Before his crucifixion. Less than a day. He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friend. What a sweet word that is, coming from the lips of anybody toward me or you. But he called us as the God-man friends. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But everything I hear the Father say to me, I want to pass it on to you. Wow. When we open the Bible every day, if we come with the right heart, the heart that Jesus Himself displayed in relationship to the Father. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, this is what we hear the writer say about the servant. He says, Morning by morning, God awakens my heart to listen like a disciple, one who is taught, so that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the Word. I love having a purpose, don't you? A purpose beyond selfishness. A purpose that gets me up in the morning and makes me want to go into the day many times when I don't feel like it. I have a job like you do. I have a responsibility to you who contribute to what pays for my living, and I'm so grateful and humbled by that. But look, don't get any ideas, but if I no longer had the job, (laughs) I would still get up in the morning with a mission because Jesus Christ has come to live in me and He wants to use me to reach others. It's true for you too. Let's pray. If you don't know Jesus... Today is the day. Oh, dear one, I can't imagine if you got even half of what this Scripture teaches not wanting to know such a King and a Lord. Would you just say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I need You. I can't make it on my own. I can't be good enough, Lord. I can't be baptized enough or read the Bible enough. I'm lost without you, Jesus. Please save me, forgive me of my sin, and come to live in my life. Thank you, Lord. If you pray that prayer in sincerity, Christ answered it. And it's a day for you to declare Him. Amen.